Within a week, the object in the night sky had grown perceptibly larger. It would appear at sunset, when the air was dimming to purple, as a faint, granular blur, a certain filminess at the high point of the sky, and would remain there through the night. It blotted out the light of passing stars, and seemed to travel across the face of the moon, but it did not move. The people of my town were uncertain as to whether the object was spreading or approaching. We could see only that it was getting bigger, and this matter gave rise to much speculation. Gleason the butcher insisted that it wasn't there at all, that it was only an illusion. It all has to do with the satellites, he said. They're bending the light from that place like a lens. It just looks like something's there. But though his manner was relaxed and he spoke with conviction, he would not look up from his cutting board. The object was not yet visible during the day, but we could feel it above us as we woke to the sunlight each morning. There was a tension and strain to the air, a shift in its customary balance. When we stepped from our houses to go to work, it was as if we were walking through a new sort of gravity. Harder and stronger, not so yielding. As for Melissa, she spent several weeks pacing the house from room to room. I watched her fall into a deep abstraction. She had cried into her pillow the night of Joshua's birthday, shrinking away from me beneath the blankets. I just need to sleep, she said, as I sat above her and rested my hand on her side. Please, lie down. Stop hovering. I soaked a washcloth for her in the cold water of the bathroom sink, folding it into quarters and leaving it on her nightstand in a porcelain bowl. The next morning, when I found her in the kitchen, she was gathering a coffee filter into a little wet sachet. Are you feeling better? I asked. I'm fine. She pressed the foot lever of the trash can, and its lid popped open with a rustle of plastic. Is it Joshua? Melissa stopped short, holding the pouch of coffee in her outstretched hand. What's wrong with Joshua? she said. There was a note of concern in her voice. He's seven now, I told her. When she didn't respond, I continued with, You don't look a day older than when we met, honey. You know that, don't you? She gave a puff of air through her nose. This was a laugh, but I couldn't tell what she meant to express by it. Bitterness or judgment or some kind of easy cheer. It's not Joshua, she said, and dumped the coffee into the trash can. But thanks all the same. It was the beginning of July before she began to ease back into the life of our family. By this time, the object in the sky was large enough to eclipse the full moon. Our friends insisted that they had never been able to see any change in my wife at all that she had the same style of speaking, the same habits and twists and eccentricities as ever. This was, in a certain sense, true. I noticed the difference chiefly when we were alone together. After we had put Joshua to bed, we would sit with one another in the living room, and when I asked her a question or when the telephone rang, there was always a certain brittleness to her a hesitancy of manner that suggested she was hearing the world from across a divide. It was clear to me at such times that she had taken herself elsewhere, 
that she had constructed a shelter from the wood and clay and stone of her most intimate thoughts, and stepped inside, shutting the door. The only question was whether the person I saw tinkering at the window was opening the latches or sealing the cracks. One Saturday morning, Joshua asked me to take him to the library for a story reading. It was almost noon, and the sun was just beginning to darken at its zenith. Each day, the shadows of our bodies would shrink toward us from the west, vanish briefly in the midday soot, and stretch away into the east, falling off the edge of the world. I wondered sometimes if I would ever see my reflection pooled at my feet again. Can Bobby come too? Joshua asked as I tightened my shoes. I nodded, pulling the laces up in a series of butterfly loops. Why don't you run over and get him? I said and he sprinted off down the hallway. Melissa was sitting on the front porch steps, and I knelt down beside her as I left. I'm taking the boys into town, I said. I kissed her cheek and rubbed the base of her neck, felt the cirrus curls of hair there moving back and forth through my fingers. Shh. She held a hand out to silence me. Listen. The insects had begun to sing the birds, to fall quiet. The air gradually became filled with a peaceful, cheering noise. What are we listening for? I whispered. Melissa bowed her head for a moment, as if she were trying to keep count of something. Then she looked up at me. In answer, and with a sort of wariness about her, she spread her arms open to the world. Before I stood to leave, she asked me a question. We're not all that much alike, are we? She said. The plaza outside the library was paved with red brick. Dogwood trees were planted in hollows along the perimeter, and benches of distressed metal stood here and there on concrete pads. A member of a local guerrilla theater troupe was delivering a recitation from beneath a street lamp. She sat behind a wooden desk, her hands folded one atop the other and spoke as if into a camera. Where did this object come from? she said. What is it, and when will it stop its descent? How did we find ourselves in this place? Where do we go from here? Scientists are baffled. In an interview with this station, Dr. Stephen Mandrazato, head of the prestigious Horton Institute of Astronomical Studies, had this to say. We don't know. We don't know. We just... Don't know. I led Joshua and Bobby Norman through the heavy, dark glass doors of the library, and we took our seats in the children's reading room. The tables were set low to the ground so that my legs pressed flat against the underside, and the air carried that peculiar, sweetened milk smell of public libraries and elementary schools. Bobby Norman began to play the Where Am I game with Joshua. Where am I? he would ask, and then he'd warm and cold Joshua around the room until Joshua had found him. First he was in a potted plant, then on my shirt collar, then beneath the baffles of an air vent. After a time, the man who was to read to us moved into place. He said hello to the children, coughed his throat clear, and opened his book to the title page. Chicken Little, he began. As he read, the sky grew bright with afternoon. 
The sun came through the windows in a sheet of fire. Joshua started the second grade in September. His new teacher mailed us a list of necessary school supplies, which we purchased the week before classes began. Pencils and a utility box, glue and facial tissues, a ruler and a notebook, and a tray of watercolor paints. On his first day, Melissa shot a photograph of Joshua waving to her from the front door, his backpack wreathed over his shoulder, and a lunch sack in his right hand. He stood in the flash of hard white light, then kissed her goodbye, and joined Rich and Strange in the carpool. Autumn passed in its slow, sheltering way, and toward the end of November, Joshua's teacher asked the class to write a short essay describing a community of local animals. The paragraph Joshua wrote was captioned, What happened to the birds? We fastened it to the refrigerator with magnets. There were many birds here before, but now they're gone. Nobody knows where they went. I used to see them in the trees. I fed one at the zoo when I was little. It was big. The birds went away when no one was looking. The trees are quiet now. They do not move. All of this was true. As the object in the sky became visible during the daylight, and as in the tide of several months it descended over our town, the birds and migrating insects disappeared. I did not notice they were gone, though, nor the muteness with which the sun rose in the morning nor the stillness of the grass and trees 